We're going to dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. You can go out to the lobby. I think Pastor Wong is out there. And while they are going out there, I just want to highlight again uh, that community groups are starting and not many people have signed up yet. So please sign up, meeting at different days and times and uh, virtual and hybrid and in-person. So you have lots of options. So go ahead. Don't assume that because you were in one last year, you're signed up this year. You need to sign up again. That would be great. And uh, again, a reminder that we have a picnic this afternoon. And uh, if you still have stuff to contribute to Tree of Life Food Drive, you can bring it to the picnic. And that would be great. I've got all kinds of stuff up here. So we'll figure this out eventually. We are starting a new series today called Misused Stories of the Bible. You may remember uh, about three and a half years ago, we did a series on misunderstood verses of the Bible. And now we're looking at stories and some of the more common uh, stories and how often um, they're just turned into sort of a morality tale. And we kind of miss the point for which they were actually written. So we're going to be doing that. And not to worry, we'll get back to going through all the books of the Bible again. But we just finished a year in Mark. So we're going to do something a little bit different for this fall. But, uh, you know, this is the out of the ordinary piece. The, the ordinary piece is normally uh, we're doing uh, books of the, of the Bible. So, but today, uh, our first story in this misused stories is Cain and his sacrifice. And so we're going to look at the book of Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And we're going to read that, and then we're going to talk about of this particular um, story in the Bible and sort of how is it misused and then what is the best way to understand it. So as always, this is God's word, so please listen carefully. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we come to it this morning knowing that we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we need this word, for it deals with faith and repentance. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us greater understanding of this somewhat dark and difficult passage. Help us to see your grace in this. Help us to see our own need of your grace this morning. Get rid of our smug and self-sufficient attitudes. Soften our hearts, make us repentant. Bring us to yourself, for we are sinners who want to walk in the way of Cain. So we pray, have mercy on us this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Over the years, I have watched the Terminator movies, usually with one of my sons. Now, admittedly, they're pretty violent, but they are well-made science fiction movies, especially the first one. Well, the first one is tremendously effective because it creates a predicament. Because the characters underestimate the power of the predator, who is a killer robot from the future, referred to as the Terminator. And of course, the Terminator is trying to kill the hero of the story, is a woman named Sarah. Really, he's trying to kill her future son. But he has to kill her to kill the future son. And throughout the movie, everybody continually underestimates the power of the predator, mostly because they think he's a human being when he's actually a killer robot from the future. And as a result, there are a couple places in the movie, especially in the early part, where this predicament is great because they don't know what they're dealing with. And the police tell Sarah, well, just stay in a public place. Nobody's going to kill you in a public place in front of everybody. They underestimate the power of the predator. There's another place in the movie where she's in the police station and they say, oh, just come here, lie down on the sofa on the third floor of the police department. There's no safer place. There's like 30 police officers here. Nobody's going to come and get you in here. And they underestimate the power of the predator. It's not just that he's out to kill her. But they don't know the power of the one who's out to kill her. So what does all that have to do with Genesis 4? Well, I hope uh, a lot. You see, in this text, God very personally and very kindly says to a particular individual, you don't know the power of sin that's in your heart. 
And it's not just that our problem is sin. And yes, the Bible says the main reason the world is in the condition it's in is due to sin. But it's aggravated because we don't even see the power of sin. And God compares sin to a predator. And we underestimate the power of the predator. And therefore, there's little that's more important for us than to understand the nature of sin. And God describes it in one really vivid verse, verse 7. It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And get that mental image, sin is crouching at the door. This is a Hebrew word that's used of wild beasts. And in particular, leopards and lions and tigers. Big cats. And big cats are predators. And if you've ever watched a big cat hunt, hopefully on TV, um, what do they do? Once they see their prey, all of a sudden, she freezes. Why the big cat predators are usually female, I don't know, but it's just the way it is. And I'm not going to say anything else about that. But she lies low, she gets down, she's hiding herself, gets out of you, pushes herself down, trying to look smaller than she really is. And she's sort of hidden. She crouches. And sin is depicted here as a lion or a tiger, a predator. And it's hiding. And when God comes to Cain to tell him, and what God's telling all of us, is sin, by its very nature, looks smaller. Your sin always looks smaller than it is. Sin crouches down. It hides itself. You rationalize it, it's hiding. But in the midst of your very ordinary life and your very ordinary feelings, there's a predator. And there's three things that God tells us about sin. We can start with this. First, what's wrong with the human race? Sin. Remember, we're in Genesis 4. Genesis 3 just happened. What's really wrong with the human race? Not just sin, but that we don't see it. We don't see our sin. And then when we finally do see our sin, we don't recognize it as a predator, and we underestimate the power of the predator. And that's what it's saying. So let's take a look at the story of Cain and Abel just to see how that works. The centerpiece of Genesis 4 is homicide. But this is more than a record of the first murder case. It's about, as Jude 11 says, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain meaning the slide of a heart away from God into notorious sin. And the story reveals something about the essential nature of all mankind. It's a story of depravity and grace. However, it's a little odd. The story starts with a little burst of optimism. And so we see right at the very beginning, verse 1, sons of hope. Sons of hope. He says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now think about this for a moment. Eve's pregnancy must have been a source of wonder to this couple. 
They're probably trying to figure out what's going on. There has never been a pregnancy before. There's no one to get advice from. There's no one who's been through it before. So I think, like millions of her daughters to follow, Eve likely placed Adam's hand on her tummy so she could feel the movement of a new life. Perhaps he even listened in awe to the heartbeat within. Eve's is the first pain ever in childbearing. But those pangs give way to a joy so deep it overcomes her pain. And the Hebrew for man is ish. It's not used anywhere else in scripture to describe a baby boy. The baby's gender is that of Adam. This is another ish. And Eve is ish-ah. So when Eve was made, Adam looked and said, another ish. That's no ish. That's an ish-ah. That's how that worked. Anyways, Eve says, in effect, God made man, and now with the help of the Lord, I have made a second man. She sees Cain as a work of God. And her words, I think, are an implicit declaration of faith. And this new mother praises God with this newly encouraged faith. Then she conceives again, beginning in verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. And his name signifies a lack of permanence or meaning unwittingly alluding to his life being cut short. Ecclesiastes uses the same word for vanity. Don't recommend you name your kids vanity. I'm sure somebody has somewhere. Nevertheless, Abel's birth doubles her joy, and Eve has become the mother of two sons. Three men fill the earthly horizons of the mother of all the living. Hope is high in the first family. Now, something happened that all mothers of sons are familiar with. Her boys didn't always get along. Hard to believe, I know. How many moms do we have here this morning that have at least two sons? Okay, fair number of hands. Keep your hands up. Okay, moms with at least two sons. Now, of the moms who all have their hands up, how many of you have sons who have never argued and never fought? Never argued, never fought. No hands. That's not uncommon either. As most parents know, the competitiveness is pretty natural for males. And again, as most parents know, it can often be revealing of what's going on on the inside, either good or bad. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And the point is that our words and actions can reveal our heart attitude. Our heart attitude, picking up in the second part of verse 2. It's exactly what we see here in Genesis 4. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We'll come back to verse 8. We know nothing of the boy's growing up years other than Cain follows in his father's footsteps, his firstborn becoming a farmer, while his little brother becomes a shepherd. So both have honorable professions. We don't know if the brothers are in the habit of making offerings or if the text is describing their initial offering. Very likely this is not the first time because of the opening words of verse 3, it says, in the course of time, which nearly always denotes a precise period of time, likely referring here to the end of the agricultural year when sacrifices would normally be presented. In any event, their offerings cause a crisis. Verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Why, we wonder, was Abel's offering accepted while Cain's was not. And why did Cain become so angry? It's often supposed that the answer is simply that animal offerings are more acceptable to God than grain offerings, that blood sacrifices are superior to grain offerings. I don't think that's the answer uh, in this case because the Old Testament um, scriptures honor both types of offerings. Moreover, the context says nothing about the priority of blood sacrifice. And even where the scripture does, it doesn't come for, you know, years and years, centuries from when this is taking place. So I think the answer does lie in the text where Cain only brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought the best of the flock. It says the firstborn from his, of his flock and their fat portions. I think the best explanation of why Cain's offering is rejected and Abel's offering is accepted is the heart attitude of the one bringing the offering. Evidently, Cain is indifferent about his offering, but Abel's very intentional about his. The Hebrew commentators note that the fat and firstborn mean that Abel gave the best the pick of the flock. And the difference is out of the hard attitude. Cain came to God on Cain's terms. But Abel came to God on God's terms. And Cain is arrogant, as the story will reveal. The writer of Hebrews gives us further insight into the brothers' hearts, indicating that Abel's offering was one of faith. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So apparently, Cain's offering was not an offering of faith. He presumed to define what his sacrifice would be, and God would have to take him and his offering as it was. And the attitude of Cain's heart becomes clear in his response to God's rejection. Because Cain gets enraged. He seems to think that somehow God's unreasonable and unfair. And he gets angry, which demonstrates the effects of sin in his life. 
heinous, surprisingly unjust, unmerciful, and unhumble. And the giveaway to his sinful attitude is his face, his countenance. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. However, if you think about it, Cain actually has the opportunity in this situation to respond in a way that he could be accepted by God. He could have taken the divine disapproval of his offering as the gracious communication that it was, humbly asked for God's forgiveness, promising not to sin like that anymore. But he didn't do that. Seeming resentment towards God wells up in Cain, which strangely and perhaps predictably is directed at his brother Abel. Cain's hatred is intense. No one could miss it. And yet God gently responds to this seething man with gracious questions. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Literally, God said, if you do right, there is uplift. That is, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And in sort of this last-ditch effort to deter Cain, God paints this frightening, however hopeful, picture for him in verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God personifies sin as a beast, as a lion, as a predator, crouching at the door about to pounce. And if Cain doesn't master it, he's going to become its victim. Likely it's dinner. Similarly, the Apostle Peter said a very similar thing about Satan. Like a lion ready to pounce. 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so it's clear that sin is seeking to dominate Cain. And if he doesn't bring it under control, it will rule him. The sin at the door is Cain's sin. And if left unchecked, it would grow inside of him and eventually it will do him in. This is what James says also, James 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the consequences of Cain's actions are far more reaching than the initial sin itself. Cain stands at the edge of hell. But sadly, God's graphic words about sin being a crouching predator is just bouncing off his hard heart. And this brings us to one of the darkest and saddest verses in the Bible where we see Cain consumed by homicide and hatred. <clears throat> the stark simplicity of the homicide draws attention to the horror of the deed. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Haste and violence pulsate in this short description. Brother is used twice in the text. It's not only a homicide, but it's a, a fratricide. I think that's how you say that. <clears throat> this is Cain's little brother. 
No doubt he was very much like him. They're the direct offspring of the mother and father of the human race. Abel's flesh felt the same. Abel's eyes were mirrors of his own. Abel's breath bore the same aroma. There are no guns or bombs to depersonalize Cain's murder of his brother. We're not told how he died. Did he crush his skull and watch him die like a bug in the dust? Did he cut his throat with Abel's sacrificial knife and bleed him like a sacrifice? Did he just choke him with his own hands until there was no more breath? We don't know. And we're told that his younger brother's a good man, a righteous man according to Hebrews 11. Jesus would even call him a prophet in Luke 11. But Cain kills him. Why? Because he hates Abel? Well, yeah, obviously. But also, no. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked rhetorically, why does Cain murder out of hatred for God? Murder is an act of hatred towards God for making or accepting another who offends us, who troubles us, who's favored with honors that we don't have, who stands in our way. And according to Jesus, we're likewise exposed by our own hatreds because they're spiritual homicides, ultimately directed at God, however private we may think they are. But it's clear in our text that the sin that's crouching at the door captured Cain. He's not able to rule over it. His sinful heart attitude led him to homicide and hatred and left him with a hardened heart. Left him with a hardened heart. Now God's on the spot. Just as he'd been with Adam and Eve after the fall, when God challenged Adam, if you remember, Adam told the truth, if not the whole truth. But Cain tells an outright lie. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Cain's flip reference to his dead brother reveals a hardened heart. Deceit becomes the murderer's refuge. And then the voice of God just thunders over Cain, verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's cry would not be silenced. Now Cain learned something that he hadn't previously considered. Abel's body, though covered with dirt, couldn't be hidden for his blood cried out to God. One Old Testament commentator writes, According to the Old Testament view, blood and life belong to God alone. Wherever a man commits murder, he attacks God's right of possession. To destroy life goes far beyond man's proper sphere. Spilled blood cannot be shoveled underground. It cries aloud to heaven and complains directly to the Lord of life. Now, it's actually pretty easy for us to point the finger at Cain and to think it would never apply to us. We would never do anything like that. How many of you remember the Adams Family? It was a long-running TV show. They made several movies about it. And in the second Adams Family movie, 
the daughter, a little Wednesday Adams, who is the closest thing to normal in that family, goes to a Halloween party. And everyone is dressed in these incredible Halloween costumes. And she walks in just wearing her regular everyday clothes. And somebody says, Wednesday, why, why didn't you wear a costume? She said, I am in costume. Well, what have you come as? And she says, I've come as a homicidal maniac. They look just like everybody else. And that's true. I read an old column by David Brooks this week. It's actually a famous article after the murder in Afghanistan of 16 civilians by an American soldier. It happened in March of 2012. <clears throat> and he, he doesn't really write about the crime. He writes about the reaction to it. And he says, the terrible crimes like this should not surprise us. Quote, even people who contain reservoirs of compassion and neighborliness also possess a latent potential to commit murder. Then he talks about this experiment at the University of Texas where Professor David Buss, University of Texas, asked his students, and I gather this is a big, large lecture hall, if they had ever thought seriously about killing someone, and if so, to write out their imagined homicide in an essay. So he got all these essays, and he was astonished to find out that 91% of the men and 84% of the women had imagined detailed, vivid homicides. He was more astonished to learn how many steps some of his students had taken towards carrying them out. One woman had invited an abusive ex-boyfriend to dinner with thoughts of stabbing him in the chest. Another young man in a fit of road rage pulled a baseball bat out of his trunk and was going to pummel his opponent if the guy hadn't run away. Another young man planned the progression of his murder, crushing a former friend's fingers, puncturing his lungs, and then killing him. Just average American college students. Cain lives in each of us. And so the curse falls, verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. He doesn't just become a wandering Bedouin. Curse goes beyond that. All of his relationships with his family are broken. All of them. He becomes a lifelong pariah. The earth itself becomes his enemy. Cain, who worked the soil, watered it with his brother's blood. And that blood had cried out against him from the soil, and so he's banned from it forever to wander over it as an enemy of the earth. Now, that sounds depressing. But I say it because I want to jar us out of this common view that Genesis 4 contains the simple moralistic tale about good guys and bad guys. And Abel's the good guy and Cain's the bad guy. And of course we hear the story and we insist we're not like Cain, which makes us the good guys. 
And because we're the good guys, we'll be able to go home today a little more smug, a little more secure. Now, I find the story is much messier and much more disturbing, and yet a little hopeful than one might think. Because as we walk through this story, we repeatedly find two realities that exist side by side. On one side, there's human sin, and on the other side, there's God's grace. Almost every story in the Bible, and really our own stories, boils down to those two things, sin and grace. So there's hope for us today. It's precisely out of the mess of human sin that God brings us grace. So last we see hearts that need grace. Hearts that need grace, verse 13. Cain's response gives us the first lament in Scripture. Starting at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. First thing I want you to notice, this is not repentance. The mark of a repentant person is you're more concerned with the sin than the punishment. The mark of a person who really isn't repentant like Cain, is basically saying that I'm more worried about the punishment. This is a person who's really, 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 really sorry they got caught. Cain falls apart. But notice he doesn't fall apart out of uh, some compassion for Abel. It's not because of the emotional trauma he caused his parents. It's not because he sinned against God. His cry is one of terror and self-pity because he, the killer, is afraid he's going to be killed. He knows with the expansion of civilization, someone with his long life would seek to avenge the blood of Abel. So he feels uh, fear and self-pity. But this is not remorse. And yet, this is what's so fascinating, God hears him. And God responds to him. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. That's amazing. God cares for the unrepentant. God cares for people who don't listen to him. He cannot bring Cain into his presence. But he protects Cain when he sends him out. God promised Cain that any uh, vigilante will be severely judged, and he marks Cain with a distinctive sign. And this mark doesn't lighten his punishment. Only a premature death would have shortened his sentence. But nevertheless, the fear of a violent death is removed. And by all estimates, God's mark, whatever it is, we have no idea, we're not told. It's an amazing grace. Cain is cursed by God and then guarded by God. Cain's life still belongs to God. He still bears God's image, however marred that image now was. This is a mercy that God can do and does for the unrepentant. There is astounding grace right here in one of the darkest scenes in Genesis. God doesn't abandon the guilty Cain. 
When Cain arrogantly brings his offering to God and God saw his anger, God didn't turn away from him. That's grace. God, in fact, engaged Cain in this fatherly manner with probing questions. That's grace. God didn't leave him exposed to Satan without a way out. Grace. God exhorts Cain to withstand temptation. Grace. And even after the murder of Abel, God listens to Cain's unrepentant, self-pitying plea. More grace. And finally, God places a sign on Cain that protects him for the rest of his life. Lifelong grace. Nonetheless, Cain has to leave. He has to leave his land. He has to leave the presence of the Lord. There are still consequences for sin. And then finally we read verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. If you remember, Cain said back in verse 12, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. And now in verse 16, he settles in the land of Nod. This is actually a play on words in the Hebrew because the land of Nod means the land of wandering. That's the impact of sin in our lives. We're cut off from God. We're cut off from community with other people. We're cut off from our true selves. We become wanderers. And without the grace of God, we find ourselves settling in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You know, in light of this passage, there's a fascinating novel. One of my favorite authors, a Nobel Prize winning author, John Steinbeck. And it's called East of Eden. It's a masterpiece of Steinbeck's later years, and it's, it's not just famous, it's hugely important for American literature. And you know what it's about? It's about a man named Adam. Adam's life has been destroyed by sibling rivalry and unrelenting pride and bitter competitiveness with his brother Charles. And he gets married and he escapes to California to set up this new place where he's finally going to have a happy life. And he names this new place Eden. And there in Eden, Adam has two sons, Caleb and Aaron. Not Aaron, Aaron. Sounds a lot like Cain and Abel, right? Because it is. His life helplessly reenacts first the fall of Adam and then this poisonous rivalry of Cain and Abel. And you read it and you kind of know what's coming. It's one of those things where you're like talking to the book. Don't do that. That's not going to turn out well. And at the end of the book, Adam discovers to his horror and everlasting shame that the problem he had all along was not with Charles, but was in himself. Because the unrelenting pride and bitter competitiveness in his own heart is passed down to his sons. They learn it from him. It spreads to them. Instead of sharing with and loving each other, they hate they're hostile, they're competitive, they're proud, and the sin becomes generational and just keeps on going. 
is what happened to Cain as a result of his crimes of first hating and then murdering his brother Abel. And in Cain's case, so far as we can tell, there's no change of heart. There's no growing love for the land and the people he left. Did Cain repent? Probably not. The New Testament scriptures uniformly speak of Cain in the negative. With phrases like the way of Cain, Jude 11, or the one who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, 1 John 3, and his life is contrasted with the righteous Abel, Matthew 23. Nevertheless, we don't know what ultimately happened to him. We are not told. He may have responded to God. Cain was certainly not beyond the grace of God. Abel's blood rightly calls for vengeance, but Jesus' shed blood shouts forgiveness to all who come to him. And in a sense, Abel looks like Jesus. But there's a way in which Jesus is the greater Abel. When Abel's blood was spilled, and spilled blood always cries out for justice. But when Jesus' blood was spilled, it provides that justice. On this side of the cross, the scriptures tell us that in coming to Christ, we come, as we said in our responsive reading this morning, Hebrews 12, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Don't you see, Jesus is the greater Abel. If you know what he means to you, if you know what he has done for you, if you know that he came and willingly died for you, if you see what he's done for you and you know how much you're now loved in him, you won't be Cain. You'll be Abel because you've placed your faith in the greater Abel, the Lord Jesus Christ who shed blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So there's the great hope for us. Jesus' blood will wash away all the hidden sins of those who come to him. Jesus' blood atones for our public sins, whatever they may be. No one is beyond grace because the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If there's one thing we learn from Genesis 4, it teaches us that Cain can't save himself, and neither can you. If you repent, God takes you to the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood provides the forgiveness we need because we failed like Cain. Jesus' blood supplies the grace we need to turn us into the worshipers we ought to be. And Jesus' blood cries out to God, not for vengeance, but for the grace and mercy and salvation of our God. For the first time in six months, we're about to come to the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper points us to Christ. You'll notice in the Last Supper, Jesus uses the elements to instruct us about the cross. He uses the simple elements of bread and the cup to show his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. When you come to the Lord's Supper, you come in repentance. You come to the cross. You come for the gospel of God's grace because you come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Think about that. Please take a moment to pray, and then I'll close, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. So you would help us to understand these things. Help us to see the seriousness of sin and to live out of the grace of God. Father, we are amazed at the grace you showed Cain. He was so undeserving, and yet you protected him. We're not nearly so amazed at the grace you've shown us. It's because we think we're better than Cain. But your word makes clear that's not the case. We're fully capable as uh, just as much, if not more, evil than Cain. And yet here you are again, showing grace to the undeserving, to sinners like us. Lord, we ask that the blood of Christ would now speak graciously to you on our behalf. And as we look and see what he has done for us, that would draw us to him. He was devoured by our sin, therefore we don't have to be. So we pray, O oh Lord, that the love and mercy and grace of that would affect us so that we may find that we really can master that sin which crouches at our door. Lord, thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sin. For we pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. From Paul's letter to the Romans. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God bless you. We'll see you this afternoon.